<coughs> again, um, not at the risk of, but definitely uh, sounding like a broken record, just to throw the question out, are you taking care of your heart? Are you taking care of your heart on this retreat? It was really important. I started the opening talk with it and I, I brought it up periodically. You know, night after night we come in and we talk about emptiness. And uh, sometimes, sometimes for everyone, that's going to be exciting, there's going to be joy with it, etc. And sometimes not. Sometimes I, I can't not stand another blooming word. About it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because there's so much to say, ideally this retreat would be much longer and we would have it sort of meta and emptiness or samadhi and emptiness, something like that. But I said right at the beginning, you all individually and together in a way are responsible for the juiciness. You're responsible for taking care of your heart. And so please just to check in and make sure that that's going on in all the ways that I talked about, in other ways, the gratitude, the appreciation, the, the love of the Dharma, nature, etc. So <coughs> sometimes the, you know, the mind is not happy. What often happens on retreat is, and, and in our lives is actually these hindrances, these five hindrances, it's almost like the consciousness, the being, this is just a metaphor, but is throwing them up like a, like a fountain of the seeds of the hindrances all the time. And these little seeds of sense, desire, greed, um, aversion, restlessness, uh, sloth and torpor, and doubt, it's like they, their seeds come up and they have little hooks on them. They have little hooks and they're hunting to sink these hooks into something, some issue. And then they sink it in, and they pump in energy, and they agitate that issue. And then we've got an issue on our hands, an issue about the retreat, or about oneself, or about someone else, or something. And that then begins to eat away the happiness. It eats away the sense of well-being. It, it's like a cancer that spreads and, and destroys the sense of well-being. Unfortunately, most of us as human beings need to see that, I don't know how many times, a gazillion times, uh, before we actually understand the process. The problem is not in the issue. The problem was in this stream of seeds, them hooking something, and then shaking something up, making the issue, and believing it. So that's, in a way, when we say taking care of the heart, it's watching out for that, watching out and learning about that process. Part of deepening in meditation is exactly that. It's exactly that. It's the, the dark and ugly underbelly of deepening in meditation. And the other part of taking care of the heart is investing in the lovely, inclining towards the lovely. So, again, I was debating that ordering of talks, and I, I don't know if it's right or not, but tonight will be a somewhat analytical talk, somewhat analytical. And tomorrow night, what I want to talk about is um, uh, what all this has to do with love and healing and a little bit about karma. But tonight's a little bit analytical. Now, please remember again, broken record excerpt number 154, um, not everyone can possibly ever do all the approaches. It's just not possible. Not in this amount of time. It's just not possible. Uh, all the practices and approaches that we're throwing out. So s some I'm going to be throwing out tonight. Um, is that okay, Richard? Yeah. Um, and remember, you can take on board some of what I say, or it can just be planting seeds. You can file it for later, very consciously. That's all fine. And there are a lot of people in this room, so everyone will be taking a different piece. And it's really, really, really okay. It's just, as I said in the opening, just to take one or two strands and file the rest for later. Okay. So... <clears throat> There's a quote, I think it's from one of the Prajnaparamita Sutras, and it says, to see nothing, to see nothing or to see no thing is to see rightly. To see no thing is to see rightly. And actually, even before that, in the uh, Sutta Nipata of the Pali Canon, 
the Buddha says, for one who sees, there is no thing. There's nothing. So, again, tonight I want to go into a little bit of understanding or a little bit of different approaches on seeing the emptiness of things. Actually, first, I want to just very briefly review something I said a couple of nights ago about these dualities, because I thought I could have been a bit clearer. Um, We believe in the inherent existence of one pole or both poles of a duality, as if left exists independent of right, as if up exists independent of down, as if long exists independent of short. So we believe in the inherent existence of a pole called mindfulness, as opposed to the the other end of the pole called distraction, of a pole called calmness or samadhi, as opposed to agitation, of a pole called non-tiredness, as opposed to tiredness, of a pole called what do we want to say, togetherness or, you know, romantic union as opposed to uh, uh, loneliness or abandonment or something like that. They are, uh, exist as, as dualities. And that believing in the inherent existence of one, I believe in this image of romantic union, whatever, something inherently existent, what that does is it primes the perception Okay, this is this is what I want to get. <laughs> okay. It primes the perception. So actually, just then, it's like when there's a lot of emphasis on the silence, how much that because 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 the um, <laughs> because uh, the mind is giving this emphasis. All right, you're all in. You're all in detention. <laughs> it's, it's my fault. I'm under the impression that Richard wants another cushion. I'm, I'm okay with it folded. It's okay. Yeah, it's it's got got plenty down here. <laughs> you want it? You want it? <laughs> I'll have another cushion. <laughs> Please continue. Okay. Are we all? Are we all okay? Um, what happens through that process, believing in one pole? is that the perception gets primed. So if I come to a retreat and I say, samadhi, calmness, that's what I want, how many people show up saying calmness? That very setting up of that pole primes the perception. It sets up the perception to notice what? Non-calmness. That's what will stand out to the perception. Do you understand? You're setting yourself up to notice more non-calmness. I just wanted to mention that because I felt I could have drawn it out a bit more clearly the other day. But Okay, then I want to pick up a little bit on sort of something Faith was beginning to say in, in the question-answer period. We could say, well, what actually exists when we point to a chair or a chariot or a human body or whatever? Where actually is that? It's obviously, well, it's right there. But where is it? Now, technically, we say, and this is very technical language, we say, the chariot, the chair, the body is imputed in dependence on uh, its bases of designation. That's very technical language. Which basically means that the mind... A look at the chair, it's got legs, it's got this crossbeam, it's got this cushion thing, it's got a backrest. The parts are the bases of designation of the mind designating chair. Same with a body, it's got hands, got limbs, got legs, got torso, etc. And we say body, or chariot, or car, or whatever. And so we say, okay, well, the parts are there, and so somehow they're making this thingness called a chair. But actually, when I look for the parts, can I find the parts? Well, I say, well, the parts, let's say the parts of my hand are dependent on, the rather, the part of my body that is a hand is dependent on the parts of the hand. To be a hand, it needs fingers and a palm and a front and a back and uh, knuckles and all the rest of it, and joints and bones and skin and... And then I go, so, okay, what are those parts dependent on? Well, they're dependent on smaller and smaller parts of the parts, all the way down to molecules. Molecules can be broken up. Molecules are dependent on parts. Down to what? Down to what? It, can I have a partless part? Can I get so small that some some subatomic particle or something doesn't have sort of uh, a part that's more up or more down or more left or more right? Can I get down to partless parts? If I can, 
if I can get down to partless parts, how am I going to join those partless parts together to make up any any uh, thing that takes up space in time? Because there won't be a left and a right of this partless part, so how will I know which side to join to which side of the next part to make up... Do you follow this? <laughs> Something weird's going on. <laughs> Yet again. I can't arrange them in space if it's partless parts. Now, actually, when we say I look at a chair, I look at that, it's not really the case. Although we can say things depend on their parts. Absolutely, without the parts, there's no thing. There's no thing without the parts of that thing. Anything has parts, and it needs those parts to make the thing. But in the perceptual process, it's not that there's this kind of infinitely small, kind of endless regression down to really small parts. It's not that that's going on. Rather, what's going on is the cognition of the whole... Uh, and and the cognition of the parts, whether it's body or whatever it is, are dependent and rely on each other. The perception of the whole and the perception of the parts rely on each other. They're mutually dependent. Now, as I said, I, I prefer to get away from chairs and, and all that kind of stuff. So let's look at this in an area where we struggle with, or an area where we struggle. So let's look at things like anger, fear physical discomfort, whether it's actual pain or a sense of blockage or pressure or something in the body, illness, something like that. Any mind state, any emotion, or any bodily condition. Uh, We could also extend it to any situation that you feel difficulty with, so bad weather, uh, an oppressed situation in some way, a a state or time of busyness, um, a difficulty in a relationship, all this is going to apply to all of that. What we see is the whole, the sense of the whole of that situation or body condition or emotion, again, is imputed on the parts. It's technical language. What it really means is getting down to this dot-to-dot thing that the mind does. So we have, um, let's take it in time with something like anger. Okay, so this anger is, is, is lasting in time, or fear, and the mind is joining these dots of experience together. How do I know that? Well, what happens, again, as a sort of thought experiment, what happens if I, here in my stream of fear, if I take out a few moments of fear, and I just take them out of that stream, how many moments would I have to take out, and yet I still see the fear as a whole as the same thing? Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Or or if it's, let's say I'm sitting in meditation, and I have tummy ache, and somehow, or I just feel the energy is all blocked around here or in my head or something. Again, it's covering an area. How many um, little pieces of that, you know, pieces of sensation could I take out of that sense and I still feel there's pain in my tummy? I still feel there's pain in my lower abdomen or something. The, the mind is making this dot-to-dot thing and we say the whole is imputed on the parts. Now that whole is not a inherently existent whole, it's a kind of um, put, it's an imputed whole, it's a, it's a supposed concluded whole, because it does depend on uh, the mind doing it. I could leave a lot of them out and the mind is still joining them together that way. Mm. Does it make sense? Mm. How many could not be there and it's still experienced as this thing, this situation, this pain, this contraction, this fear, whatever it is? So the mind imputes, perceives, conceives of the whole. Okay, so the whole, we could say it's empty, it lacks inherent existence. What about the parts? The parts then, the little parts of this tummy ache, the left part and the upper part and the the part at the edge, or this moment of anger, can do it in time or spatially, those are then given more significance because of the sense of the whole, because of their sense of being a part of a whole. You understand? Or in a situation, we feel burdened by the whole of the situation, this moment of the situation. It's being interpreted and given significance as a part of an oppressive whole. You see? And, And the two feed each other. So the whole is empty and the parts are empty. You've got two empty things leaning on each other. This is a principle we'll keep coming back to. Can you say again, sorry, about the parts? Yeah, so let's, let's um, take a, a, a stream of... Um, well, let's take a tummy ache, okay? So here's this area of my abdomen, that, that, and then I, I start to see that that, um, 
that this part here, if that just existed by itself, this minuscule little part, I wouldn't say I had a tummy ache, okay? But this part there is actually given significance when I have a feeling of a hole. You understand? But we've already said the hole is empty, so you get this, this two kind of two concepts that the mind is throwing into the situation are then supporting each other to give this sense of solidity both to a part of it, either in time or spatially, and to a whole. Yeah? Um, so we're interpreting it something. That, again, it's, it, we can do it either in moments that are given more significance and then drawn out, in that, that significance is drawn out because of the burden of the whole. Also with something fantastic. We talked about lunch being, you know, uh, the fantasticness of lunch, sorry, Gavin, is, uh, <laughs> is, is also empty, you know, to a certain extent. The mind gives it that. Or we can do it spatially. So you've got this odd thing. If we think about the parts of something, the parts of some experience, either we go down and they depend on their parts, which depend on their parts, which depend, and you always end up with a partless part, or you go the other way and say it depends on the whole, but that's already imputed on the parts. Either way you go is empty. Get it? Now, this, uh, if you get the hang of this, I find it's very quick, very easy, and uh, cheap. (laughs) 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 You can plug it in very quickly. Uh, Once you get the hang of it, so all these analyses, you need to reflect on them a bit and reach that point of conviction. And then, right there with the tummy ache, right there with the knee pain, right there with the fear or the anger, you can plug it in, see what happens the thing begins to lose its sense of inherent existence and actually usually dissolve right in front of you. Um, So, as I said, this applies to lots of situations. Now, this can apply, of course. What I want to say is, you go go away and use this. Go away and use it. Uh, Use it in, you know, there's this situation with your work job here or this or that or whatever. Take it apart. Take it apart and see its emptiness. So... Sometimes we do that, we analyze whether it's a chariot or whatever it is, and uh, this way. And we still feel that the thing is a problem. Uh, sometimes we then need to go and kind of take apart the sense of the I that still wants this thing or still is aversive to this thing or fears this thing. If the first kind of taking apart that we did was thorough enough, it takes care of everything. And even if we then went to the sense of self, you'd find that that was kind of seen as empty as well. So there's something, if you're going to use analytical methods uh, about being as thorough as you can uh, with the steps, and sort of like going through every step and really making sure it's there. And it can get very quick, but um, if you don't kind of draw out the implications of each piece, it won't, it won't have any, any impact, or much less impact, put it that way. So it's interesting, this principle of mutual dependency, what's being refuted, what's being kind of disproved there, is the inherent existence of things as as kind of separate things. But somehow in the mutual dependency, it's also affirming, kind of in a way, it's affirming all the phenomena of the world, in a way, but just affirming them through their interdependent relationship. In other words, left is left because right is right in relation to left. Understand? There's a kind of affirming, but not of inherent existence. I think I threw it out one time as an example, talking about, um, you know, if you get a handwritten letter, people don't even do it, well, notes like here, uh, a, a, a note, and you sort of squint at it and stare at it, and uh, it's like, what is that word? Well, some of the handwriting is, you know, an A doesn't look anything like an A, but we pick it up dependent on the context. We pick it up, that part, dependent on the whole. Um, or even the parts of an A might not all be there, but we see from, from the whole, we, there's a dependency on context. Again, how many or how much of the parts need to be there for recognition? Okay, This is arbitrary. It's very interesting. So let's take the human body. We could do what we just did, and I began to do it a little bit, on on the human body, and actually see that the body is also, we could take it down to its partless parts, its subatomic particles, and then then what kind of thing. Or we could, again, see this mutual dependency of the parts of the body on the whole of the body. 
so I won't go into that. But I want to talk a little bit about seeing that the body too has no inherent existence. Not only is it not me, not mine, but it also lacks inherent existence. And so um, I think this is either from Stephen Batchelor or Thich Nhat Hanh, I'm not sure, but um, when does the water that we drink become the body? I drink a glass of water, when does it become the body? The air I breathe, at what point I take it in, what point does it become the body? Where are the boundaries between what's so-called not the body and the body? Where are the boundaries there? Or, I don't know how many people have porridge in the morning. Porridge is a good example because it's very, it's very gooey. And uh, You put the porridge in, at what point does the porridge become the body? It's kind of osmosing through the intestinal lining. <laughs> At what point does that become body? Or, I can, let's consider this, this body for a sec. I'm sitting here and I start chopping off bits of my body. Chop off my hand. And you look, and I throw my hand out the window. <laughs> and you look and you say, it's still a body. Chop off the other hand. Chop off my arm. Chop off the other arm. Still a body. Chop off my legs. <laughs> yeah, okay. Chop off more of the torso. Chop off the head. At what point does it become not body? Again, this is this is m- the mind is imputing it. Yeah, no one can say it's at this point. This is the definition. Because then someone who loses a finger through an accident or gets their leg amputated, they say, well, they don't have a body. That's not a body there. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm using that word in the best way. Um, what I mean is that it's up to anyone's mind in that moment to decide it. Mm. You know, and different people, or you at a different time, are going to decide a different thing. It's not... Um, no, it's a little bit different. It's more, it's more saying that the mind decides something in a moment to, to define something in a certain way, or see its thingness in a certain way. Now that chariot meditation, I know some of you are doing it and enjoying it, you could also do that not on the self but on the body. And again, a body has parts. Is it findable in its parts? Is it different than its parts? Does it possess its parts? Etc., uh, etc. Et Usually we get caught around something like the shape of the parts is the body. But again, I think I threw this out at one point. What would happen, uh, I can't remember what I said, but if my ears sort of started um, descending and ended up you know, on the soles of my feet and uh, all the hair in my body gathered in one place and um, my nose started going you know, to down here. And at some point, again, you said, that, that's not a body, at some point. So again, it's this kind of arbitrary... <laughs> play with this in the imagination. I find it very useless, also it's being entertaining. Um, <laughs> It's also useful because you really get the sense as something's moving of not being able to say when it is and when it isn't. And you see this this mind imputing, this mind imputing, which is a lot of what we're putting emphasis on right now. But a lot of what will... Well, actually, that's probably the best uh, explanation of shape. Um, I'm just wondering about time. Um, I'll just say something more. Actually. It's a little bit more subtle, but... Does the body have one shape, or is it many shapes? So for, for the shape of the body to be something, for anything to be inherently existent, it has to be either one thing or many things. Okay, because otherwise the mind decides in this moment, is it many or is it one? Is it one shape or many shapes? So again, I can say, well, my hand has, um, my hand part of the body has, it has its own shapes, and then those parts of the hand have their shapes. And you begin to, again, you can go down to partless parts, and you begin to get the sense that shape also is something kind of projected onto something. It's quite subtle, but w- the mind projects the notion of shape of something onto something. Sometimes we talk, and I've already mentioned very early on this retreat, about the subtle body, and some people like that uh, that way of working and thinking, and some people don't, and that's fine. But what about this subtle body business? Sometimes in meditation you're sitting there, the body, as this kind of solidity, seems to have really dissolved a little bit, or lost its boundaries, and you just have a sense of a subtle body that's much more 
um, what's the word, permeable, amorphous, less defined, more open. Where does that subtle body end? Like, this is me, this side of it, and the rest of the universe is, is all out there. You notice it more with the subtle body. It's just quite a, a, a permeable, amorphous kind of division between me or, or body and the rest of the world. And we think, well, is the subtle body, is it the same as the gross body, or is it different, or what's going on there? So, what we're moving towards is saying that all the aggregates, all the five uh, skandhas, all the, all the kand- five khandhas, body, uh, vedana, uh, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness, consciousness, all of them are actually empty of inherent existence. It's not just that they're not me, not mine, but they're actually all empty. And this this actually is, funnily enough, one of the sort of distinctions between Mayana and Hinayana, which I won't go into, but um, Nagarjuna in The Precious Garland says, as long as a conception of the aggregates of the skandhas as inherently existent exists, so long does a conception of the self, the I, inherently exist. In other words, we can kind of feel like we're getting rid of a bit of the sense of inherent existence of the self, but if we still give the aggregates inherent existence, it's almost like these, um, it's very hard for it not to come back to having a sense of inherent existence of the self. Do you understand? Um, so, we talked a bit about the body. We talked about Vedana as well, and how Vedana doesn't have uh, an existence. Uh, it, we, we've seen this, we've talked about this fading. It depends, it depends. Um, perception. We've talked about that already as well, and the notion of fading and dependency. We talked a couple of nights ago about grasping as one of the mental formations and the intention to hold on or to push away. Um, them, those being inseparable from Vedana. You actually can't separate what is the unpleasantness and what is my rejection of it at a certain level. Uh, mind states, again, are part of uh, the fourth foundation, you could say, mental formations. So we've already been through this, but just for the sake of filling it out again. So something like discomfort or tiredness is actually unfindable. I mean, it seems like such an obvious thing, but when I look for it, it's actually unfindable. And again, we say it's imputed on the basis of the sensations and perceptions and those on their parts and those on their parts, down to partless parts or moments, or, as we said earlier in this talk, the, the parts and the whole are mutually dependent and mutually empty. We also see, with something like tiredness or difficulty in the body, that the appearance is dependent on the way of looking. So standard, agreed-upon, conventional way of experiencing it is, it, it's a pain, it's a pain. That just That's what it is. Um, but if you're contemplating impermanence, it becomes just some flickering atoms of sensation, which is the real one. Or if you're doing the chitta-matra, the big awareness, it's just an impression in awareness, which is the real one. Something I can't remember if I've talked about it in here or not, but have I talked about dependency on labelling? I don't think I have in here. Okay, so this is very interesting, and it's, it's quite interesting, again, with something like fear or pain, and sometimes when you're quite quiet, you might notice that it's almost as if the object, the sensations of fear or pain are there. And you can catch the mind putting the label fear or pain on it. And if you can begin to see them as kind of two separate processes, uh, it's almost like you begin to catch that for it to be pain, it needs the labeling to kind of fix it and, and demarcate it and solidify it for it also to be fear. When does it become fear? Partly it's the labelling that gives it its thingness and its substance, substantiality and definition for consciousness. So one way of doing this is just to begin to separate out those two processes. Actually in the moment that fear or pain is going on, just to see the mind doing that and just see one thing as labelling and one thing as sensation. And then what begins to happen? We've also talked about, um, the other night, about the inseparability of a mind state from my reaction to it. I can't find, let's say with fear, what's the fear of the fear, uh, or with anger, what's the aversion to the anger. I can't find the separation there. 
inseparable from my reaction to it. So body, Vedana, perceptions, mental formations, we'll talk a bit more about mental formations, that leaves consciousness. Now we've touched on this a little bit, and I'm not going to go so much into it uh, until next week. Why? At the moment we're mostly, or at least I'm mostly, emphasizing this process of how things and objects are dependent on the mind, or how the mind is, I keep saying, mind's creating the world, mind is creating the world. When I say that, I don't mean to imply too much of a one-sidedness, as if there's something called mind and it's creating the world. It's rather just that it's easier to see that dependency. It's easier to see that things and objects depend on the mind at a meditative level. That's easier to see than uh, to see that the mind is dependent uh, meditatively. And that's what we want. We want to be able to work with this meditatively so we actually begin to feel the freedom of things uh, in the meditation. So definitely it's about mutual dependency, but I'm just emphasizing one angle of that right now for the most part. So intellectually, for some of you, I know some of you already have have picked up on, well, um, awareness must depend on the object, etc. But it's, it's a... If it's just an intellectual understanding of how the mind is dependent, that won't bring that much freedom. And we can see that intellectually, but the degree of freedom that it brings won't be as strong as if we're actually able to see things kind of uh, fade, as I was talking about the other other day in meditation. Because when we see things fade or blur a little bit, we're actually, the, the, the fact of dependent origination and dependent cessation is being imprinted very, very deeply in, in the awareness. We're seeing it right in front of our eyes. It's dependent, rather than just, oh, I see that it must be the case that da-da-da-da-da. <coughs> um, so what would it mean, we haven't, we touched on it, we haven't really talked, what would it mean to see consciousness fade? You know, what would that look like or be like? So in... Um, it's, it's another Prajnaparamita Sutra, it says, the Tathagata, the Buddha, teaches that one who does not see forms, does not see feelings, Vedana, does not see perceptions, does not see mental formations or in, and intentions, does not see consciousness, mind or mentality, sees reality. So it's one thing to understand intellectually, and that's that's important. So it's the first first part. But right now, I'm emphasising the things depend on one. That's actually meditatively easier to see uh, that way. But eventually, uh, all things, and and we do see their fading, and that that fading is important. Um, all right. What it turns out with the aggregates, you know, all this stuff, as as I say, it takes time. And at first we we learn to kind of separate out the aggregates. Oh, that's that, and that's this one, and this is that. But eventually what you see, and this this really does take time, eventually what you see is the aggregates actually (coughs) arise together, and they're dependent on each other, and they're inseparable. They're not separate. So we talked, I think it was in a question-answer period, I can't remember, about perception and feeling, perception of Vedana, not being actually separable. You can't have a moment of experience and take out the Vedana, take out its fact of unpleasantness, pleasantness or neutrality and leave the perception as it is. Well, you can't take out the perception of what it is and leave its unpleasantness, pleasantness and neutrality. They're, they're actually inseparable. And we touched on this a little bit. Where does, for instance, consciousness, knowing begin and the perception end? Are those Two things, or two ends of a stick, or, you know, we'll go into this more. Uh, attention and consciousness, are they separate or different? Intention, to pay attention, and consciousness and intention, are these all separate things, or the same thing? They're not quite the same, but they're not separate either. We also see that the aggregates in the present are not actually separatable from the aggregates in the past. So, 
we've talked a lot about this business of reacting to an unpleasant Vedana or reacting to a pleasant Vedana with aversion or clinging. And that aversion or clinging, we've seen, actually creates and shapes the next moment's Vedana, you could say. So here's a moment of unpleasant Vedana, and it's somehow making the next moment of Vedana and the reaction in the next moment. Where are the boundaries here? What's... You know, is it actually separatable into discrete moments? So that's that moment of reaction. That this is it. It's. I'm just going to leave you with that. Actually, it's not. It's not perhaps possible to find separatability with all this. But we have this uh, habit to want separatability. The mind wants the separatability of things. One of the things we want to separate is cause and effect, or cause and result. So, as two separate things, or as as inherently existing things, say, well, either, if they do exist as inherently existing things, either the cause precedes the result, cause comes before, cause exists before the result, or the result exists before the cause, or they exist at the same time. That pretty much covers all the options. (laughs) If the first one was the case, if the cause existed before the result, you couldn't really call it a cause because it's not causing its result. And something that doesn't cause its result, doesn't produce a result, you can't call it a cause. It's not, it's not um, performing its function of a cause. If the result existed before the cause, what would have caused that? It wouldn't have been the cause that caused it. If they exist simultaneously, if they come into being at the same time, there's no time for this cause to be a cause of that result. There's no time for that to happen in. What are we going to do with this? So we, we, again, we have this tendency, the mind has a very deeply ingrained tendency to separate out inherently existing cause and inherently existent result, inherently existent this and that. And as someone was saying today in an interview, what we kind of push out of the picture is this whole infinite web of causes and conditions that are actually not separatable. So any, for anything to come into being, it actually relies on a whole infinite series and... Uh, breadth of causes and conditions and we tend to isolate something in there and through that get into problems so Thich Nhat Hanh talks a lot about this how in a way the whole universe is, is present in anything and so in that sense emptiness is actually a kind of fullness last thing Let's consider something like walking, okay? In the um, Mula Majamaka Karaka's, uh, the sort of seminal text that really, really got this ball rolling about emptiness uh, from Nagarjuna. And the second chapter is, I think it's called an examination, it's either an examination of walking or an examination of motion. But again, if if you consider walking, it seems to be it's obvious what walking is. But if you really, you know, while you're doing the walking meditation, if something begins to soften and kind of open out in the heart and open out in the seeing, begin to see that the walking is actually dependent on and inseparable from the causes and conditions and parts of it. So it's walking is inseparable from body. No body, no walking. Walking is actually inseparable from the earth. Can I separate walking from earth? Can I separate walking from gravity? Can I separate walking from the intentions to walk, or the perceptions of walking? In a way, sometimes, you know, when, when sometimes the mind just gets quite quiet and open in meditation, you almost see the whole of the universe is involved in taking a step. It's right there, or uh, moving the hand through the air. Actually, it involves the whole universe. I cannot separate walking from these things. 
We also talked at some point uh, about things existing in opposition to something else, in relativity to something else. So walking exists in relationship to what? To non-walking, right? Walking stands as something in contrast to non-walking. When does walking become running? Again, you see... <laughs> you <laughs> Is that true? It, in that moment, yeah, it could be jumping. It could be jumping, or falling, or or skipping, or you know, the, the, what if you try walking in your walking meditation, just moving faster and faster and faster, and at one point do you consider it's no longer walking? Again, you get this sense of the, it's moving along a scale, and it's this. I'm sure it's the wrong word in English. This arbitrariness of when the mind imputes it. Or, the other end of the extreme, walk really, really, really slowly. Really slowly. And at any point, just drop in the question, is this walking right now? You're walking so slowly, you're barely moving, and just, is this walking? Is that walking? What is not walking? Is there a moment when I'm not walking? Where is the walking? And in everything that's going on in the time of walking, what is the mind kind of, again, shunting to one side, cutting out of the concept of walking? (coughs) So actually a whole totality of experience is going on, and the mind is getting rid of some of it and saying, this is walking. But actually it's not even clear that it's doing that, and clear what it's defining. What is the mind cutting out uh, to form the concept of walking? Again, there's a sense of actually walking being something infinite, in, in, in the most beautiful way. You can get the sense sometimes in walking meditation. It's just, it's infinite. It's actually infinite. Every step is a kind of infinity. And again, all this is, is easier seen the less clinging there is and the less identification. So, uh, with everything, as we talked about when we talked about fading, as the self-identification gets less, as the grasping gets less, the thingness of things gets less too. Their definition, their solidity, their appearance gets less. And you can actually feel, as you're walking, it's almost like you don't perceive the walking. There's just It's faded from consciousness, um, dependent on, on the clinging, or the, the release of clinging. It's like walking disbands, kind of disbands. The actual, the perception of walking. Well, f- first the concept, uh, that begins to fall apart. And then if you go deep enough, and I'm talking about a very deep level now, but uh, the actual sense of walking begins to, it just, it dissolves as a perception. It can dissolve as a perception. In, let me read you, I think it's one of the verses from this, um, from this Mulama Jamaka Karaka. So it's, uh, fundamental verses on the middle way, something like that translates as. Um, has anyone r- read or read parts of this, this text? It's Nagarjuna, yeah? So it's Stevens. Stevens' translation. Yeah, there's lots of different translations. And um, uh, it's very, very, some of the verses are very, very cryptic and hard to understand. It's, Beautiful and incredible richness of sort of reasonings for emptiness. But one one of them says this. He's talking about walking, and he says, Im- "So imagine a walking path. You're walking up and down on the lawn outside or in the walking room. On the path that has been travelled, there is no moving. On the path that has not been travelled, there is no moving either." And in some other place, besides the path that has been travelled and the path that has been not, motions are not perceptible in any way at all. Do you get this? Can you everyone see that? Yeah. Yeah? So there's a white piece of something wrapped on one. Let's just assume that that goes all the way to the end. So one half of this is white and the other half is uh, wood-coloured. This is my walking path. I walk from one end, and let's say I'm here. When I'm in the middle, at the end of that white bit, I'm in the middle of my walking path, there is no movement in the part that I have traversed. There's no movement in the path I have yet to traverse, because one is gone and one is yet to happen. Between the end of this, and it's like between 
that part of the path and this part of the path, there's nothing else. They together, section A and section B, fill up the path. Where is the, where is the walking going to happen? <laughs> now we can do this. <laughs> uh, there's no other part outside of th- this A and B. Uh, we can do this not just spatially, but we can do it with time. Okay. If motion or walking exists, there has to be a time at which it exists. Okay. Just, if something happens, it has to happen at a time. So if motion exists, there has to be a time at which it exists. And when we talk about something happening, or, or talk about motion or moving, Motion, we say, what does that mean? It's a change of uh, placement, a change of position over time, right? That's what motion means. But the present has no duration. The, the, The present moment has no duration. It's just a... The present moment has no duration. So that means that motion or walking or movement has to exist either in the past or in the future, which means that nothing is now moving, now. And you say, well, all right, but really that's just playing with language because then it was moving or then it will be moving. But that implies that actually all motion is it in the past or the future? Right? It's then. Now, let's say I have three points in time. Point A in the past, point B right now, and point C in the future. And I'm saying there's nothing at B. It has to be at A or C. But if I go to A, the first moment in the past, that actually becomes another present. And so I could always say this at any point in time, that motion is always in the past or the future. Or never in the present. Uh, how long is the present? Is there time to move in the present? <laughs> the present has no duration. The present has no duration other than the duration the mind gives it in its perception. I'm going to talk about time next week more, but... Um, One more thing about walking, or motion, or change. Actually, this this goes to any process of change. In fact, uh, you can you can extend this these kind of reasonings. Let's but let's take the example of walking. When does walking begin? Here I am at the beginning of my uh, mindfulness walking path with complete, pristine, pure mindfulness, totally alert to the moment. When does the walking begin? Does it begin? in the stationariness. It can't, because stationariness by its nature is stationary, so it can't be the beginning place of walking. It's not moving. Or does it begin when there's movement already? It can't, because it's already begun. I can't have a moment that's both moving and stationary. That's a contradiction in terms. And I can't have a moment that's neither moving nor stationary. So what Nagarjuna does in this book, and it's a whole book of very cryptic, not not always cryptic, but very sort of terse and and short um, reasonings in verse form. It's an incredible, incredible sort of outpouring of genius. And what he does is to take any any kind of concepts that we build our reality around, any concepts, and, and say, if these inherently exist it would naturally follow, and he, and he fills out the consequence, and always the consequence is illogical and absurd and kind of ridiculous, or doesn't, doesn't fit together. So that gave rise to eventually what's called the consequence school, the prasangika school of um, emptiness, which is universally considered the, the highest school. But it started with, with Nagarjuna and these kind of reasonings that if something inherently exists it actually it doesn't add up to any kind of thing that makes sense at all and they're supposed to leave the mind in this kind of stunned uh, 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 (laughs) state 
But the, rather than that being the goal of med- meditation or the path, um, it's rather <laughs> that we want to extract ways of working in meditation um, and, and sort of have them kind of portable and shorthand that you can plug in as you're walking or as you're sitting and you've got this pain, as I talked about, with the parts in the hole, etc., and actually use them. And they bring, rather than a kind of... Um, frustrated perplexity, they actually bring a sense of freedom. Because you realize, well, the thing I have to let go of is actually the belief in inherent existence. And then, well, let's go of that. I can't believe I finished under an hour. <laughs> that's, that's something. Um, if you're going to... So please remember what I said at the beginning. Not all practices, and no one's going to do all of this, you might take nothing from the talk tonight, and that's absolutely fine. You might take one piece, totally fine, um, and file the rest for later or whatever. If you're going to do um, analytical or reflective meditations as part of your practice here, careful, watch out, um, that we don't get too kind of... Um, the, the thinking mind doesn't begin to run away with itself, and then sooner or later we're thinking about all kinds of stuff as no business being thought about on this retreat. <laughs> uh, you know, just the mind's just gone off on a, on a kind of tangent. So be, just be aware of that. You know, wh- whatever we do in practice, there's a potential pitfall, whatever we do. And just be aware of the mind sometimes getting a little bit out of hand, and then just come back to samadhi, metta, something very, very simple. Simple, uh, non-thinking as much as possible, and just being there in a very simple way. Like that. And then when you feel ready, going back to that. Eventually, and, and again, this is a slightly dependent on the personality of mind thing, but it's actually possible to have a state of some real relative samadhi, calmness, clarity, stillness, and within that, uh, use the reasonings, use a little bit of this parts and whole business or, or um, wh- whatever, uh, and it doesn't upset the samadhi. So in the, uh, I think it's the Geluk tradition, they have this image of the samadhi being like a still ocean, the, uh, the still ocean depths. And in, in the still ocean depths, little tiny fish are darting around, but they barely cause a ripple in, in the stillness of the samadhi. And so, so not everyone gets on with this, but for some people it's quite possible to have quite some stillness of mind, and actually the mind is thinking in a very... Um, you know, delicate and directed way that doesn't upset the samadhi. So for some people that really works. Other people kind of have to go back and forth between thinking and samadhi. And reflective meditation is just not everyone's cup of tea. And if it's not, leave it. Okay, just leave it. Not a problem. Okay, is there still some consciousness? (laughs) Um... Okay, actually, that's, that's all I'm going to say. Let's, let's sit uh, together for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.